This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hey, this is episode 103 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today again is Tim Hannigan, and we're talking about his new book, The Granite Kingdom, A Cornish Journey, which is a literary and a literal journey through Cornwall. In addition to Cornwall's culture and geography, we also speak about recentering maps, identity, walking, slow travel, the Tamer River, the Tim Hannigan method of outlining or structuring books, and other topics. As ever, links are in the show notes and at travelwritingworld.com, where you'll also find more interviews and other delights. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider supporting the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Or subscribe to my free Genius Loci newsletter for a roundup of travel, place, and nature writing news at jeremybassetti.com. So now, here is Tim Hannigan. Welcome back to the podcast, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's, it's so nice to be back. Um, I think just about two years ago, exactly, I was here with you for the travel writing drive. Um, and you were the first person to talk to me about that. So it's very nice to be back again with another book. Nice. With nice. you first, which is where all travel books should start with right. travel writing world. <laughs> Don't flatter me. Don't flatter me. But it's nice to speak with you uh, again about your newest book, The Granite Kingdom. But first of all, where, where in the world do we find you today? I am in Ireland, which is where I am kind of most of the time these days. But Cornwall's not a million miles away, and I do still mm. do a lot of coming and going. We, we come backwards and forwards between Ireland and Cornwall. So I'm one of those people who claims to live in two places. But I am in Ireland most of the time. Yeah, good. So Cornwall, your latest book, The Granite Kingdom, takes us on, I guess, a, a literal and a literary journey through through Cornwall. So for, for, for those Americans listening who fail geography... Give us a sense of geography. Where 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 on earth is Cornwall? Okay, so um, I, I like to I like to kind of flip the map and invert the map and try and centre Cornwall uh, when I'm talking about it. Mm. So imagine if you you took Europe and you you turned it you turned it sort of through a through a ninety degree angle. So so everything's facing facing the wrong way. In fact, actually flip it completely upside down. So everything's everything's facing bottom to top. Um, if you look at the what's now the top of Ireland, conventionally the bottom of Ireland, and then you look at what's what's the the kind of pointy out bit of France, Brittany with Normandy sticking over over the other side, and halfway between them, you'll see this long narrow peninsula jutting out, pretty much exactly halfway between Brittany and Ireland. And it sticks way out into the Atlantic and it's got a little kind of boot heel at the bottom, like a like a miniature Italy. That's Cornwall. If you look at the map the normal way around, it's the far southwest peninsula of mainland Britain. Um, it is technically administratively part of England, um, but you have to be very careful about calling <laughs> Cornwall England because there are people who get slightly upset about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about that, but... Just before, I'm I'm curious about this um, the the map inversion and why why do you do this exercise? What 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 does this yield for you in terms um, of? 
I think it's it's a nice thing to do with, with all kinds of places. Um, Cornwall is conventionally seen, uh, in, including by people from Cornwall in, in the 21st century, in relation to England or the centre of England, certainly to London. So it's, it's the end of the train line mm-hmm. um, from London. But of course, it's also the beginning of the train line if you come from there. Uh, and like like all, all places that have been constructed as peripheral to the conventional centre, uh, it's just very useful to, to recenter the map. And if you put the centre of the map on Cornwall, you suddenly see how close it is to Brittany and to Ireland. It's closer to Brittany and to Southern Ireland than it is to London. And that's historically significant because it was part of this Atlantic network of communication, of trade, of cultural exchange, going way, way, way back um, to d- deep prehistory, to the Bronze Age and beyond, probably even into the Neolithic. Um, and the, what's now the conventional centre, uh, London, yeah, that was another world. That wasn't the network it was stitched into. So that's why I like to flip the map around. Yeah, that's interesting. In the center. Uh, so, so you spent a lot of time in, um, you know, abroad and um, what we would kind of call exotic places like Indonesia, and you've you've written about it in the, in the past. Um, and 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 you note that um, in, in your new book, you note that in English literature, uh, Cornwall has been uh, often exoticized. Like you know, Cornwall is different. I think the slogan goes. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk about the like the literary history of Cornwall that you talk about in your book. But um, before that, also, like you were just talking kind of about uh, the geographical and the cultural uh, difference of Cornwall. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned in the book, that, you know, the Celts, you mentioned Cornwall having, you know, been largely outside of Rome's tentacles, I guess. Um, you, you mentioned the Cornish language and its similarities with Breton in, in Brittany and France. So give us a sense, I guess, of, of you know, a, a little bit deeper sense of like what Cornwall means culturally. Okay. Yeah. So a potted, a potted history of Cornwall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so <laughs> you have what is conventionally known as the Celtic fringe, these, these bits of Britain and France, if you include Brittany. Um, there's also bits of Spain that sometimes get taken right. into that, but that can get a little bit, little bit complicated. But these are the, the, the bits um, that supposedly were less subjected to um, Roman and then post-Roman uh, cultural change. Um, so they have languages still spoken or spoken in very recent history in those places that have a have a heritage going back at least at least the iron age so so um 2000 years plus mm-hmm. um and cornwall is one of those places it's one of the less well-known ones I mean, wales scotland and ireland uh would probably be the best best known places with celtic languages with an association with this 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 kind of older older culture predating anglo-saxon culture predating norman culture and then the the kind of spread of germanic cultures on mainland Europe as well. Um, so Cornwall had had a, a language very closely related to Bret- Breton and Welsh that was spoken as a community language until about 200 years ago, wow. then died out and then was resurrected. But quite separate from the language, there'd, there'd been this, this idea of cultural difference and slight political difference in Cornwall ever since it was roughly assimilated into England in the very early days of England. Um, it wasn't just subsumed, wasn't just fully assimilated. The idea that it was part of England, but not quite part of England, that it was that it was occupied by people who weren't quite English was there right from the very beginning. And somehow, somehow that idea has lingered 
right up to the to the present day um, in external and internal perceptions of Cornwall. And that's what makes it an interesting place. I mean, it's somewhere that should have lost its cultural distinction, according to logic, a long time ago, but but it didn't. It's held on to it in a peculiar way. Yeah, that's interesting, as you were mentioning this, and we won't spoil it, but in, in the book, there's a, a scene kind of in the middle of the book, I guess, where you speak, you, you, you speak about um, encountering some... Um, so let's just say some inebriated folks on a train and you, you and your brother, and <laughs> there's a little quarrel, I guess. And you, you mentioned something about, oh, no, we're not, we're not English, we're Cornish. And that kind of diffused <laughs> the situation. But you're, you're talking about identity here, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I'm, I'm from Cornwall um, and I have always described myself as Cornish. And, um, you know, there is a Cornish nationalist movement. And in, in recent years, there's, there's kind of become a more strident use and possibly sometimes misuse of history around that. Um, some quite bold claims are made uh, by people in an eagerness to establish the idea of Cornwall as a place that is completely distinct from England, that is hashtag a nation. Um, and right. that it always has been. And that's not really how nations work they haven't always been absolute separation they certainly haven't been where you're all crammed into one small island so actually i you know one of the things behind the book was slightly uncomfortable questions i was starting to ask myself you know why was it that i would always say well i'm cornish not english um if somebody called me english why would i always correct them and say well I, actually it's it's cornish and, and what was <laughs> what was kind of going on behind that and were there any were there any problems with that um were there any things that i needed to maybe interrogate a little bit um and yeah that, so that was the kind of the personal aspect of the book and the slightly uncomfortable bit then the bit that's going to get me into trouble with some people i'm sure yeah you know but you you mentioned this kind of nationalist movement uh, of sorts and I, i'm thinking here again about my wife who who's from Brittany in france and and when we visit when we visit you know you, we can we can notice that strong identity there, right? There are flags, there are people who embrace, you know, this this language, they speak the language in the streets. Um, and, you know, there's kind of like this fringe separatist kind of mentality uh, there, um, which is quite interesting and gives a, a local color to the place that, you know, one doesn't necessarily expect when they visit France or, you know, not least that region of, of France. So I wonder if it's sort of like that uh, in Cornwall. It, you know, it really is. Um, in fact, uh, Brittany and Cornwall are the most the most similar in terms of their status within the larger the larger state to which they uh, belong or to of which they're part of. You know, Ireland. Well, the, the greater part of Ireland is a fully independent republic, um, and the bit that's not is not part of England. Um, Scotland and Wales are nations, even though they're part of the United Kingdom. But Cornwall has this peculiar status because it administratively, technically, is an English county, although there are people who argue about the legal status of that. But practically speaking, it is. And yet it has this identity that isn't quite that. And Brittany is very, very similar in that, you know, Brittany isn't a nation, not uh, not legally, not formally, not administratively, but there are people there who would say that it is and would say it's not part of France. So Brittany, Brittany and Cornwall are very similar and the languages are, are incredibly similar. Right. It's the power, not to get too academic or nerdy here, but the, the power of this idea that has been popular in academic circles for, I don't know, about two decades, this idea of the imagined uh, community, you know, the imagined nation status as particularly powerful in, in developing nations. 
themselves. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, this is very much the kind of, although it's not an academic book, the idea of the imagined, the imagined community is there somewhere below the surface. The idea of the things that go into creating an idea, a self-perception of, of a, of a nation. Um, and sometimes those, those of us or people who are subscribing to that, who are saying I am Cornish or I am Breton or whatever it might be, um and also i am english or british and i am american some of the things that feed into that identity don't bear looking at too closely (laughs) if you look carefully you might find that yeah they come from peculiar places like books by travel writers from other places (laughs) yeah or we need to administer a cricket test to see Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Read the book if you don't get the the reference. Um, yeah, yeah. Do we do it? It's it's difficult. There there are things in it that are difficult to talk about without spoiling it. Um, yes, yes. And it does have. There are things that are best revealed in their right place in the book. Yeah. Um, we're, so we're talking about imagined communities, but you know, I can't help but notice that you know Cornwall seems to be, and I, I don't know if this is also imaginary, but there seems to be this kind of. Um, this threshold when you go into Cornwall and here I'm thinking about the Tamar river, right? The, the river as a border, as this kind of important geopolitical boundary in the landscape. Um, um, this, and yet it's like an also, it's also an important literary device, you know, like the crossing sure. of the threshold into like the foreign land. Um, so <clears throat> maybe we can use this as a, a segue into talking about um, literary history or literary representations writing about Cornwall. Like, so how is this difference? the Cornish difference perceived or communicated in, in literature. So briefly to just uh, set that up, I do need mm-hmm. to talk about the, the river, the Tamar, the, mm-hmm. the border of Cornwall um, and the border between Cornwall and Devon, which is a neighbouring county, or the border between Cornwall and England in a lot of people's eyes, mm-hmm. is this river, the Tamar, which runs from very, very close to the north coast. It's a narrow peninsula. It rises in the very close to the north coast, but then flows south. Um, so almost the entire border is, is made up of this river. And as a border, the Tamar is actually one of the, the oldest um, quasi-national frontiers in the whole of Europe. It was established in the ninth century as a border between what was then an emerging England wow. and this, this place that was um, sort of a vassal of this emerging England, but was occupied by people who weren't English. Um, so it's it's a really, really ancient, ancient border. And its establishment, I think, is key to the fact that Cornwall has kept this slight ambiguous aura of difference ever since. And it's and it's a really obvious border. It's this, this river, not a particularly big river, but it runs almost cutting the peninsula off, almost making an island of it. So it's very obvious when you make that crossing, particularly the, at the main traditional crossing point which is from near the mouth from Plymouth across from Plymouth into Cornwall and it's a it's a a a deep river valley at that point not particularly wide but very deep so there are two bridges a rail bridge and a a road bridge and from before that rail bridge was built in the Victorian era it was a boat crossing quite a significant Hmm. one big tides running across so travel writers coming into Cornwall it had this really obvious point of arrival um, there was there was a border that appeared to be a natural fact. It wasn't a political. It wasn't just a, right, okay. a political construct. It was a natural fact. You stepped onto a boat and you crossed this <laughs> fairly wide river and you landed on the other shore. So that just made it very easy for writers to create a dramatic moment of arrival 
Um, so, you know, I have arrived in Cornwall, very much like landing on an island. Um, you step ashore, you cross the bridge, and, and now you're in this new place. So what's tended to happen, and you can really see this in a lot of the 19th century travel writing, but then through into the 20th century travel writing, is at the moment the traveller arrives in Cornwall, everything is different. Right. The landscape is different. <laughs> the people look different. You're in a new land. Now, the fact of the matter is the landscape in that part of Cornwall is virtually the same as the landscape on the other side of the river it's Devon, not a yeah. particularly wide river <laughs> doesn't look any different if you didn't know you were in Cornwall you wouldn't know you're in Cornwall and the people of course the people look the same but if you've been primed for the idea that you're arriving in this barren rugged wild gothic landscape peopled not by English but by Celts then well, maybe you see it, maybe you see that when you arrive, or maybe when you come to write it down months later, you seem to remember it that way, um, right. whether it's, or maybe you just kind of make it up, but it's an irresistible moment of arrival. Uh, and, and and there's multiple, multiple examples of that. Travel writers turning up and going, wow, new foreign place, I've just crossed the border. So I, 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 have, a, I have a bit of fun with that idea. Um, but I also make the point that it goes the other way because people from Cornwall are very aware of crossing the border. Um, and when we cross the border, we sort of feel like, yes, now we've left in somewhere completely different. Everything has changed. Um, and well, that's, uh, that's an imaginative thing. That's a perception thing, not necessarily a concrete actuality. Right. And some uh, pretty famous English or British writers, um, have, I'm just like, trying to be very careful with the terms now like it's it's all up in the air <laughs> yeah um, oh it's a minefield when you get to <laughs> well i guess some english writers uh, like wilkie collins and um, and others like passed through and and wrote about you know this this land and you you mentioned in the book at various points you know some of the um the ethnographic work that was being done in the i guess in the early 19th century or earlier you know, the, these, you know, very, you know, what we consider now to be very antiquated ideas of, of race. So like images of, of heads and, you know, you can imagine scientists with calipers and kind of measuring swarthiness and, and those types yeah. of things. But um, do you know the crazy thing, Jeremy, the, the, actually that was going on as recently as the 1980s. Um, I, I okay, cite wow. it somewhere in the book. It was a journal article, academic journal article attempting to decipher the origins of the Cornish. I think it's called How Celtic Are the Cornish? And their methodology was pigmentation and craniofacial measurements in the 1980s. Wow. Okay. Um, and this is this is within Britain, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was big stuff in the Victorian era, but not that long ago, there were people going around with calipers, measuring people's heads to work out what they were. Um, so yes, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 striking and fascinating but the i suppose one of the ideas that i have tried to really confront and try to be really honest about in the book is you know people from cornwall who like to see themselves as not english like to see themselves as this ethnic minority um and i would have certainly dabbled in that right. <laughs> across the course of my life enjoyed the sense of being not english um sought to kind of auto exoticize there is this this thing <laughs> that we don't like to admit when you come across something like that you come across um stuff that is you know uh, would would unquestionably fit within the parameters of of racism when you find denigrating or exoticizing accounts of cornwall and the cornish if you're from cornwall 
and you want to be considered different and you want to be Cornish, not English, those things can be kind of validating. If you find an English writer being incredibly derogatory about these swarthy Celts in Cornwall, um, you could sort of feel like, yeah, see, that, that proves that we are, right. <laughs> we are, we are this exotic race because that's kind of what we want for ourselves. And it's a dangerous thing. And I think in the 21st century, it comes from a, a position of great and unchecked privilege. Um, and people don't often admit to it and don't often talk about it. So that was one of the things where I thought, well, look, if I'm going to talk about this stuff, if I'm going to travel through my own homeland, I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to confront those things and right. admit to them. Yeah. Traveling through your own homeland. Um, so you, your book has you walking through Cornwall largely. Um, and I know you keep yourself updated with like the current trends and travel writing and you know, given your profession and, you know, your other, your other work on the subject and I'm thinking about your other book, uh, the travel writing tribe, but also know that you wrote guidebooks as well. Um, so what was like walking throughout Cornwall, uh, you know, was that like a deliberate thoughtful decision with climate in mind, or was there just like, like this idea of slow travel or both? Like why, why, why walk through this area? Um, that's a really, really good question, actually. And I was asked um, at an event uh, for the Travel Writing Tribe a couple of years ago, uh, a question about the that rather more kind of straightforward ethical question about travel writing. Is it ethical to go jumping on planes, to go flying off to places? Mm -hmm. um, and the other person I was speaking with is a kind of working travel journalist as well as a travel writer. And she was kind of saying that it's a problem and, and, um, and wasn't quite sure how to address it. Uh, I, I don't really do the guidebook work anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And, but I do write books and I'll be writing more books. And actually my, my answer there to that question was well the most recent one was a journey on foot through the place i'm actually from the next one is likely to be a similar journey um on foot possibly through ireland and i have another idea lined up after that which will be a journey within that kind of atlantic arc where i placed cornwall on the map mm. um which would hopefully mostly be able to use ferries and that's kind of serendipitous because that's where my interests have have settled i mean it's where i'm from probably where the original interests were and having gone in my 20s and 30s and ranged around asia and sat on a lot of flights i've kind of gradually come back so it's it's partly a natural natural return to somewhere closer at home but it also i'm, I'm aware of the fact that actually it is kind of it's fitting with um with ethical choices we ought really to be making now i would also say that most most narrative book form travel writing tends to fall within the parameters of what we call slow travel anyway. Mm. Um, and I think right, somebody right, taking right. one single flight and then spending six months traveling around wherever it might be, um, the US, South America, Southeast Asia, I, that kind of is, it seems better than, um, than people flying for a weekend in the Caribbean for a, for a magazine article possibly. So I think, I think book form literary narrative travel writing uh, does a little bit better on that front anyway. But um, the fact is my likely focus, this book and the next few books will be within within areas I don't have to do long long haul flights. Um, and that fits quite nicely with, with the way I think we should all be going really. Right. But the walk itself, um, walking as a means of travel, it's... I, I like it. It allows a deep, a deep immersion in landscape, which is what I wanted to do here, to move through the different landscapes slowly. It allows for chance encounters. Um, it, it really allows you to, to, to kind of gauge 
the landscape in a way that I don't think other modes of, certainly not motorized modes of travel do. Um, possibly if you're on a horse or on a bicycle, it might work the same way, but <laughs> you, you're kind of stuck to stuck to bicyclable roads if you're on a bike and you need to feed the horse. So um, walking is walking is the easy one. Let's leave the horses to the uh, to the inventions in our books. Let's yes. <laughs> yeah, but there seems to be like an ethos and also a pathos of slowing down and, and walking. As you mentioned here, kind of really taking time and seeing the landscape engaging and you know just frankly seeing things that you wouldn't otherwise see and experience yeah and there's there's an absolute glut of of walking books certainly certainly coming out of britain at the moment i mean this year already uh gail simmons's book between the chalk and the sea that's about a long haul walk tom bullock's book San Helen which is absolutely stunning uh it's about a journey through Wales uh and there's a whole bunch more to come so this you know walking as a mode of travel writing research uh is it's seems to be the thing the dominant the dominant mode certainly in the travel writing coming out of Britain at the moment I think yeah I would agree and also it seems to be also uh, you know especially if, if if the travel book calls attention to the walking in, in a very prominent way it seems to be and perhaps even a you know a subgenre, much like train travel, rail travel, yes. right? You know, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. And um, and it does. Uh, well, train train travel as well. It, it it fits within the way that we should be trying actively to travel more mm-hmm. when it's traveling for for um, non-essential purposes. Which which writing a book is is non-essential ultimately. Right. Well, let's push back on that, right? So, so to, to write books. Well, <laughs> no, I, I want people to write books. I want <laughs> as many people as possible to write books, but but we don't have to write them. So hopping hopping on jet planes to do it. Um, no, I it. guess we try need to minimize it. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you um, a while ago you and just I guess within the last several days um, as we record this, you you posted a photo on on Twitter uh, of some sticky notes to a wall. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, gosh, it must've been a year ago or something. I asked you, you know, what's going on there with those sticky notes? Because I knew, according to the post, this was related to your new book that we're talking about now. And if I recall, there are, you know, different colors. Um, maybe some of them have the chapter titles, but some of them um, referring to like, a, I don't know, destination. I, I was wondering if if you could Talk, tell us uh, visually, I guess, describe what we're talking about here, these sticky notes on your wall. And like, I, I'm, I'm trying to ask you a question about organization and, of, of a book using your sticky notes, this method, the Tim Hannigan method. <laughs> yeah. what, what's going on here? It's a, good, it's a great method. Um, this, was, this was probably the most complicated, no, not probably, it was the most complicated book I've ever written. I've written narrative history books before. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote The Travel Writing Tribe, which was loads of stuff going on in there. But that was a kind of episodic book. And the narrative history books, the history was the core of the narrative. This one, uh, there was a journey, the walk. So that's the, the, narr- the formal narrative core. But I had so much other stuff to talk about the history was not linear the history was was kind of broken up i would talk about one thing talk about another thing talk about another thing where they fitted in with the landscape and the walk then i had the literature to talk about and the kind of sociological stuff i guess as well so i had these multiple categories this huge long mass and and list of things 
Um, I'm usually pretty good at, at holding the ideas in my head and plotting out the narrative of individual chapters when it's narrative history or travel mm-hmm. writing, but there was just so much going on here. I was kind of daunted by where it was all going to fit. So that's what the sticky notes were for. I used it on a big wall in my in my room. Um, I just stuck a single kind of strip that was the travelogue. Uh, that was straightforward. It was linear. It was a journey. So all the different stages of that were in a long strip on sticky notes. They were the green ones. Then I had history, all the historical stuff, uh, historical and sociological stuff, actually. That was all on the orange ones, if I remember correctly. And then the literary stuff, the stuff about the ideas, the textual stuff, um, the discursive stuff, that was all on pink notes. So what I was then able to do is kind of move them around and, mm-hmm. and think, okay, where does where does the bit about Daphne du Maurier, where does that fit according to the green bit? And then where does the bit about whatever it might be, the mining industry, the industrialization, the mining industry, where does that go? So I could kind of move them around. So it was very useful. It was like a big kind of incident map, police incident map. And as I, <laughs> as I kind of had the first draft, I was able to move them under the chapter heading. So everything was there. And then every so often there'd be these kind of orphan bits. There'd be a pink right. one or an orange one that hadn't fitted in anywhere. And I'd think, do I still want to have it? And I think, yes, I definitely do. So you'd look at what it, what it was and think, where could I, where could I put that one in? And then the idea would come. You'd think, ah, I can add that one into the bit about whatever it might be. So it was really, really good organizationally. Um, and if I do a similar book with a similar kind of mass of stuff going on, I'll, I'm pretty sure I'll use it again. You need a wall. You need a, a need nice a big good wall. empty wall to do it with. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm working on this new project. That it's kind of like a photo book project myself. And what I did was I printed out, you know, three by five or index card size um, images and I tacked them to the wall and it was immensely helpful for me to to see everything kind of spread out, you know, in one, in one glance, essentially. Um, But what this forced me to do, I, I, I learned was to like see it almost every day when I woke up, I would encounter this wall with my images and I didn't rush into it, but I was able to kind of slowly move things around and, and put the images in the order that it made sense. It was like this organic, slow process. And I was wondering, you know, if if the process for you in writing your book was kind of this this kind of slow quality to where you, you would see and you would think and, you know, seeing it every day would force you to question and, and like maybe even subconsciously, you know, think about the ideas and where they might fit. And you're able to kind of just like peel them off the wall and stick them under another yeah, section. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think actually you said it better than I did, really. Um, there was a lot of kind of standing, peering at the wall. And obviously I'd be doing other work. I've teaching work to do. Uh, right, right. Various other things to do. And there would be periods where I wasn't writing, wasn't working on the book for a couple of weeks. But every time I came into the room, I'd look at the wall. There and they if were. there was just you know, a bit where I'd get up to stretch my legs, I'd walk and look at the wall and, and I'd think oh, I think that bit could maybe go over there, couldn't it? So you'd move a sticky note around. So the book had a physical presence that was there in the room, even when I wasn't working on it. That's nice. Yeah. And so in terms of like the journey, uh, by this point, did you have the journey already already finished? Yeah, I, I did the journey. Uh, it was really important for me for there to be a solid single hit journey. Uh, and it's one of my slight niggles with a lot of the... Um, the walking literature coming out of Britain at the moment is that, that people often do these long journeys, but out of necessity, they break them up, uh, which is fine. Um, and some writers are able to, to really still create a, a wonderful sense of cohesion out of that. 
Um, Robin McFarlane obviously is mm-hmm. masterful at doing that. But I do like the idea of a single committed journey. So I, I wanted to do that with this and I did. And it was it was only it was only only three weeks, although it felt like a lot longer because of the the ideas. I really did travel with the ideas and I was really sort of confronting the personal ideas about identity while doing it. But it was a single, a single hit, a three-week, a three-week three journey, about 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 300 miles. Um, walking almost the whole way. I caught a bus once and I caught a ferry at another point. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a walking journey. Um, I was camping, staying on campsites, uh, but also wild camping as well along the way. Um, and it was, yeah, it was important for me that it should be a real journey. When I got to the end, which is the place I'm from, my family home, I wanted that to be the end of a sustained journey. And it was. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. We're getting uh, threatened that Zoom is going to kick us off here. So why don't we say our goodbyes? Uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And like your other books, I really enjoyed uh, The Granite Kingdom. Um, it comes out, I think, in May, May, mid-May. Is that right? It is. 11th of May. It is out in uh, Europe and the UK. And then it's out everywhere else in the world. I couldn't tell you exactly, but a couple months later, the okay. usual the usual procedure. So we ha- the Americans have some time to to look at the map sideways to figure out exactly where, where, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> very good thing uh, Tim thank you so much uh, for your time where can we find you online remind us uh, y- you can find me on Twitter it's at Tim underscore Hannigan um, I have a website which is uh, timhannigan.com you can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and if you find the show valuable Please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com/support. 